Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. And welcome to this month's Naked Neuroscience podcast with me, Hannah Critchlow, brought to you in association with the Wellcome Trust and in partnership with the British Neuroscience Association. This month, we're finding out about the science of funny. We'll be visiting a laughter clinic and faking giggles to see if they can stimulate the same brain circuits as a real laugh. We'll be meeting a professor that's built a tickle machine. Plus, this is the sound of a small animal being tickled. But which animal is it? We'll be finding out. Kicking off the programme, we've hopefully all enjoyed a giggle or two during our lifetimes. But how we express what's tickled our fancy varies. Some people let out hearty bellows. Some chuckle and shake their shoulders with mirth. Whilst others laugh silently inside. And what we find funny may differ too. Smut makes some smile, others love a good prank or pun, and some just laugh loudly at it all. We've had a lot of questions in from you about laughter and why and how humour evolves. And to answer some of your questions, I caught up with Professor Sophie Scott from University College London. First up, she tackles this. Hi Naked Scientists, Stephen here, regular listener, love the show. I'm wondering, why do we laugh? I know that we laugh as we find something funny, but what are the underlying reasons? Has this ability to laugh made an impact on the survival of the human race? If you ask humans what makes you laugh, we'll talk about jokes and we'll talk about humour. If you look at when we laugh, when we laugh when we're with other people, we laugh when we're with our friends. So you're 30 times more likely to laugh if you're with somebody else than if you're on your own, and you'll laugh more if you like those people or if you want them to like you. And actually, if you look at laughter from that sort of social perspective, it's exactly the same in us as in chimpanzees, as in rats. It's basically an old mammal behaviour for facilitating social bonds, making them, maintaining them, and sort of ensuring that groups of people sort of cohere together by laughing together. So it has a tremendous advantage for us. I think it's about comedy, and actually laughter is mostly about social, social bonds and who we, who we like. We laugh with the people we like. So we laugh to facilitate social bonding. But what about other animals? Kate McAllister asks this. Hi, Hannah. I just wondered if you could tell us, do other mammals laugh? Well, they seem to. Wherever you find laughter, it has very similar properties. You find it associated with tickling and you find it associated with play. And in fact, there was really nice work done with rats by Yang Panksep. And he was working on rats' vocalisations and looking at the sounds that they made when they were distressed. And to do this, what you have to do is record the rats and transduce the sound down in pitch so we can hear it, because rats are much smaller than us and they make very high-pitched sounds. We can't hear them. So they noticed, once they'd done this, that the rats made other sounds. And, for example, when the rats were playing with each other, and rats are very social animals, when they play with each other, they made a different sound, and they wanted to know if that was something like laughter, so they started tickling them. And they noticed that the rats made the same sound when they're tickled. 
And in fact, if, you, if the rat tickler tickles the same rat every day, the rat will start making that sound when they see you. It's just that sort of, you know, if you've got that kind of... If you've ever been around children, you're sort of playing with children, you get that sort of tickling thing, and they'll start laughing even if they think you're going to do it. You know, it's kind of got that sort of quality to it. And I, mean, it's, and I, I like the relationship with play. I think the relationship with play is very interesting because wherever you find play, you find laughter. And play is another very basic mammal behaviour. You find it across all mammals. It's a sign, if you just watch a group of children playing, it's a sign that they are playing, that they'll make these laughter sounds to indicate this is all a game. Mm. So I think there's probably a lot more laughter out there amongst other mammals, certainly, maybe other animals as well. Um, we're, and we just no one's looking for it, you know. Can you demonstrate what kind of noise the, the rat or the mouse laughter is if, if you convert it into something that the human ear can hear? It, it, it sounds to us like a sort of chirpy chirp. It doesn't sound like laughter, whereas if you heard a chimpanzee laugh, you would think that sounds like laughter. It sort of sounds like... <laughs> sound to it. But, you know, it sounds recognisably like laughter. As an aside, do you think that laughter is something that babies learn as a child? And they, they know that they're getting a very good reaction from adults. So is it innate or is it a learnt skill? Well, I, th- I think it's probably something that will emerge whether or not they babies have experience of seeing it or hearing it. So there's evidence that... Deaf and blind babies uh, smile and laugh, whether or not they've seen or heard somebody else doing that. What you can do is, however, you can prime that and sort of encourage it. So we know from the rats that the rats who laugh more when they're tickled as adults are the ones who were tickled abundantly in infancy. So it's, it's a prepotent response. It's something we'll do, you know, a behaviour we will produce, whether or not we've seen exemplars of it. But you can encourage it. And um, one of the things that I'm very interested in is why in adulthood people have very different experience of laughter. So I, every time I talk about laughter, you know, online or at some public event, I'll meet somebody who says, I find things funny, but I never laugh. And I'd really like to know why, you know, why some people, you know, laugh at the drop of a hat, but other people are much more, you know, less likely to exhibit the behaviour, although it doesn't affect their enjoyment of things, they're just not laughing. So I'd be interested in knowing sort of how, that, how those developmental experiences feed into adult behavioural styles around laughter. Thanks, Sophie, and we'll be returning to Sophie later in the show to find out exactly what's going on in the brain and body during laughter. But first, quite a few of you got in touch asking about fake versus real laughter and the contagious power of giggles. In order to investigate this, I visited a yogic laughter clinic hosted under a chestnut tree on a lush green in Cambridge. I spoke with Zoe Harris, who hosts the sessions, to find out why clinics like these are proving so popular. So, laughter yoga was invented by Dr. Madan Kataria in 1995 in India. And his philosophy behind it was, as a medical doctor, he wanted his patients to um, improve psychologically but without the use of drugs. So he found an article about how laughter, even fake laughter, um, can trick the brain into feeling more happy. And so he researched this a bit and he started trying to get this group together in the park and they met and they told jokes to each other and they had a bit of fun for a few weeks then the jokes got out of hand, got a bit inappropriate. And so he developed a series of exercises that would just help promote laughter. And so even if you don't feel like laughing, you join in and the brain will follow eventually and you release all the happy hormones, all the endorphins, um, oxygenate the blood and it just helps you feel very 
very positive and enlightened person. And so his wife was a yoga instructor. And so that's where the yogic part comes in because he combines the laughter with pranayama, so breath of life, um, and some deep breathing exercises to also calm the mind as well as uh, oxygenating the body as well. So today we'll just be doing a series of exercises. So no previous experience required, just follow what we do. And Zoe kick-started the clinic by asking us to laugh loudly from the belly to the skies. Here's what happened. (laughs) We were then asked to laugh to all four points of the compass. And by the time we'd reached the west, it was like a pack of hyenas had hit the park. You might be able to pick out my cackling contagiously and uncontrollably amongst the crowd. (laughs) Worryingly, it also sounds a little bit like wailing. So what was happening here? Why did fake laughter trigger the real deal? Neuroscientist Dr Tristan Birkenstein, who works with the Medical Research Council Cognition and Brain Sciences Unit in Cambridge and attended the laughter clinic with me, got to grips with a question that David Vanderberg got in touch with. Why is it that when you fake laugh for long enough, you end up laughing for real? And Kate Lamble has also asked, why is laughter infectious? Laughter, you can think of it same as yawning. So if you start to fake yawn, you will start to yawn for real, and you will be contagious, either with a fake yawn or for the, with a real yawn. Um, and laughter probably works the same way. So there, there, are, there are a couple of papers the last two years looking at fake laughter versus some sort of real laughter. I would say mainly it's about smiling, and they do seem to recruit quite a similar network, including the motor cortex and and some other areas. So the motor cortex is involved in controlling our muscles? Yeah, so so the motor cortex, it's controlling the muscles muscles of the face and the muscles of the larynx and the muscles you would use to laugh. But very strong laughter does involve whole body movements in general. Thank you, Dr Tristan Birkenstein from Cambridge. And a study published in 1988 by Strachan colleagues indicates that simply gripping a pencil in your mouth to induce a fake smile can make you actually find things funnier. Participants with a pencil stuck between their mouth rated cartoon images as more entertaining than those with closed lips. You can try it on the move, even if you don't have a pencil on you, simply by repeating E. And sticking with the subject of fake laughter, with this question for Professor Sophie Scott from University College London. Hello, my name is Jan, and my question is, if there are specific areas in the brain that get recruited during laughter, do they get recruited during fake laughter as well? In other words, could you tell whether a person is faking their laugh from their brain activity? Well, there's two ways you can look at this. So some some study looking at people laughing so what happens when you are producing laughter and what they did was they either asked people to produce the laugh you know ha 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 or they went and tickled them while their feet stuck out the end of the scanner to produce real laughter and interestingly the network looked very very similar but you could identify a brain area in the hypothalamus a very small area that was specifically involved in the real laughter so what you might find is that it's 
real laughter and posed laughter are very similar in maybe motor terms, but there is an emotional difference, and you can see the correlate of that for the real laughs. There's something that we're interested in is the flip side of that, which is what happens when you hear laughter. And we've been looking at what happens when you listen to laughs, and, and unbeknown to you, there's actually two different sorts of laughter in there. There's real laughter and there's posed laughter. Um, what we find is that your brain absolutely tells the difference between the two whether or not you're told to listen for them. And actually, you get very interesting activation to the posed laughter because when you hear somebody laughing and they're clearly not actually helplessly laughing, actually, that's most of the laughter you hear. When you're laughing with your friends, you're not most of the time actually crying with laughter. So it's an important social cue that tells you people are doing it for some reason. I think you're always trying to work out why people are laughing. And that's why when you hear posed laughter, there's actually more, to, there's more mystery to it. it it's, real laughter is unambiguous. Clearly, somebody's helpless mirth. Whereas if you hear somebody going, ha, 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 you know, why, why are they doing that? Who are they doing it for? What, the social part of your brain really wants to know more about that. Oh, so your social part of your brain actually gets more activated when it hears fake laughter than exactly. when it actually hears real exactly. laughter. Oh. Exactly. The same brain areas that you use to work out other people's motivations and thoughts are activated more when you hear people laughing in a posed way. Whereas for, for the real laughter, you get lots more auditory activation. And that probably reflects the fact that real laughter, if you think back to the last time you were laughing and you could not stop laughing, you're actually producing incredibly strong pressure in your rib cages. You're forcing the air out in those laughs. And it produces a sort of set of sounds that you don't produce any other way and you couldn't produce any other way. So acoustically, real laughter has some very interesting hallmarks that I think are why we get more, more auditory activation to it. So regions of the brain light up with intriguing patterns of activity when we laugh, in a real or fake way. But what about the chemistry of chuckles? Mark Burgess got in touch with this. Does making yourself laugh release as many endorphins, if any at all, as real laughter? You absolutely do. So it's been shown by uh, Robin Dunbar over in Oxford that you increase your uptake of the naturally circulating endorphins when you laugh. And that seems to be whether or not you do, you're really laughing or you're posed laughing. And that's probably because of the physical work that you're having to do to laugh. It's, you're, you're doing exercise. It doesn't feel like it, but your um, intercostal muscles, which move when you're laughing, move so much more than they do when you're normally doing things like breathing or talking that it's a bit like sort of sprinting for your ribcage. Well, like sprinting is for your legs, laughing is for your ribcage. So you get the same kick from your increased uptake of endorphins that you would get from doing any other kind of exercise. There's nothing particularly special about laughter in that respect it's just but it's a sort of exercise you can do sitting down with friends which isn't not normally you know what a place where you do a lot of exercise so it's, you're getting a good feeling from it via that route again robin dunbar's shown that you get raised pain thresholds when you've been laughing the consequences of these increased uptake of endorphins physically makes you better able to tolerate pain Fabulous. The power of laughter makes you less susceptible to pain, releasing endorphins, exercising your body and engaging your social brain. Thanks to Professor Sophie Scott from University College London and Dr Tristan Beckenstein from Cambridge. And if you've got any burning questions about your brain and the nervous system, just email them to neuroscience at thenakedscientists.com. You can tweet us at Naked Neuroscience or you can post on our Facebook page and we'll do our best to answer them for you. You're listening to the Naked Neuroscience podcast with me, Hannah Critchlow, brought to you in association with the Wellcome Trust and in partnership with the British Neuroscience Association. Now, during this show, we've been investigating laughter and one of the things that makes most of us giggle is being tickled. (laughs) 
The power of tickle. Now, some people are uber ticklish, whilst others don't react at all to a gentle, tactile tease. And what's more, it's almost impossible to tickle yourself. That is, unless you have the psychiatric illness, schizophrenia. In order to investigate this, Professor Daniel Walpert from Cambridge University built himself a tickle machine, the equivalent of a robot holding a feather duster. I met with him, firstly asking him what tickling can tell us about how our brains work. The reason we were interested in tickling is it's a very nice example of how the brain does sensory processing. So one feature you have to do when you process sensory information that comes in through your visual system, through hearing or through touch is that some of the sensations you get are due to what you're doing with your own body. And some of it just comes about passively from things moving around in the outside world. And a fundamental thing the brain wants to determine is what bits of the sensory input I'm getting come from an external source and what comes from what I do. And tickling is a very nice example where when you do something to yourself, it feels very different from what's done externally to you. And so there were hypotheses from the 50s which suggested that perhaps tickling had to do with the fact that the brain make predictions of what you were going to feel based on your own actions and remove that off. Very similar to the way those noise-cancelling headphones work. On aeroplanes, they cancel off the external sound so you hear the internal sound coming from your speakers, but the brain would have to make a prediction, a rather complex prediction, of what was going to happen. To study this, we set up a really nice robotic interface which allows to control the relationship to what, what you do and what you feel. So you'd hold a stick in one hand attached to a robot that moved in three dimensions, and we could track that movement and use it to control another robot which tickled you. And so we could replicate an old 70s study where either you moved and tickled yourself or the robot just tickled you without movement. And what we found is what we'd expect. It felt much less ticklish when you tickled yourself compared to the robot tickling you. But the really nice thing we could do is then put in some different perturbations. So subjects would move back and forward with the tickling stick and we'd replay that to themselves in tickle mode, but with time delays of a tenth or two-tenths of a second. And with these very small time delays, the tickling sensation became greater and greater. And by three-tenths of a second time delay, it felt like the robot was just tickling you and much more ticklish than you were doing it to yourself. So it seemed that temporal causality was very important for cancelling off the sensation. And what happens in, for example, schizophrenia, where people with schizophrenia can actually tickle themselves? So there, there was a prominent theory of some of the um, delusions that schizophrenic patients have. For example, they have something called delusions of control. And that means they make normal movements, but they claim their movements are being controlled by external sources. And so this predictive phenomenon can actually be used for a different thing, not only to cancel off sensory feedback, but also to determine whether the movements I'm making are due to me or due to an external source. So the moment I can hear a voice speaking in this room, but I'm pretty sure it's my voice speaking in the room rather than you speaking or my voice being played back to me. And one way you can do that is I can make a prediction based on what I'm doing to my vocal tract and to my lungs of the sounds I should hear. And if those match well with what I do hear, it's me doing it. On the other hand, if I hear my voice being played back, I'll realise it's not me because I won't have made the predictions of what I should hear. And so one theory of these delusions of control that schizophrenic patients can have is that they fail in terms of their prediction. They're surprised by their own movements because they don't predict the consequences and therefore attribute them to external sources. The consequence of this is that, effectively, they don't have the predictive um, ability and therefore they should have no difference in their tickle ability compared to self-tickle and external tickle. 
And although I wasn't involved in the study, a group of patients were examined up in Edinburgh and it found exactly that. They didn't show any difference in their perception of self-tickle compared to external tickle. So they can effectively tickle themselves? More likely that they can tickle themselves compared to normal people. And what else have your tickle machines been telling you? Well, based on the tickle study, we actually went on to look at some other things. So one thing we were very interested in, um, I have two children who at the time of that study were quite young. And what you'll notice about children on back seats of cars on long journeys, they tend to get into these fights which tends with one of them does one thing to another, the other one responds, and it quickly escalates to the point at which you scream at them. And my two daughters would get into these fights, and they'd often claim, both of them, the other person hit them harder. And I felt as a neuroscientist, it was my job to explain, because I I know my children never lie, to how they could be telling inconsistent truths. And so we thought from the tickling study, we could probably explain why these sorts of um, fights tend to escalate. And that's because when you actively do something to someone else, because you generate the commands to do it, you predict the sensory feedback and subtract it off. So when one child hits another, they think they've hit the other person less hard. So if the other child retaliates with the same force, the first child thinks it's been escalated. So based on that observation, we decided to run these sorts of studies, not in children and hitting, but with adults and just gentle touching, in a tit-for-tat type game. And what we found is when we got people to play a tit-for-tat type game, where one person touches another and they have to touch back with the same force, if they don't know the rules the other person is playing by, and that we brief the subjects in different rooms, we find the forces they use escalate rapidly over, over the course of five or six turns each. And if you ask the people, what rule do you think the other person was playing by, they'll say things like, well, they were being asked to double it. And so we've done quite a lot of studies now showing that when you generate forces on the outside world, you always tend to underestimate the forces that you're generating due to this general predictive phenomena. And I think that's true not only of forces, but also in terms of speech. We always think we're speaking quieter than we really are, and so on. It's a general feature of attenuating what we believe we're doing on the outside world. And how does this fit in with patients with schizophrenia? Well, the pre- prediction from this is a nice prediction. So in normal subjects, when, you are, when they feel a force passively and have to reproduce it actively, they push too hard because they attenuate their enforcers. And since we believe there's a failure of this predictive mechanism in patients with schizophrenia, then effectively we predict they should be better at that task. So if you don't attenuate, you should be better at matching forces. And the nice thing about that is most of the inpatient studies, you assume the patient's going to be worse at something. And here we have a prediction they're going to be better. And we've tested this out in a, in a group of um, patients with, who have um, schizophrenia and age and IQ match controls. So what we found is they're significantly better than controls in that when they experience a force passively and have to match it actively by pushing with their finger, they do a much better job than normal subjects. Interestingly, we see quite a variety of attenuation in normal people. So some people attenuate a lot when they produce forces, some don't attenuate very much. And we've recently had a study in Cambridge where we gave people a delusional inventory questionnaire. So these are just normal undergraduates in Cambridge. Questions such as, do you ever feel you're destined for greatness? And because we're in Cambridge, many people have delusions they're destined for greatness, and that's part of a delusional thinking. I was about to say, can you get a normal volunteer <laughs> amongst the Cambridge well, students? We, we, get, we get a range. You know, the, the questions go from, you know, do you ever think people are talking about you behind your back to do you ever feel you're a zombie with no will of your own? And so from this we can get a measure on each subject of the delusional thinking. And what we found is it strongly correlates with how much they attenuate. So that you, even with the normal population, somehow delusional gradations of thinking correlate with how much you attenuate when you're doing these force-matching tasks. Well, the more delusion you are, the less you attenuate, so the more effect you have on the world around you. 
experiment. The, the basic experiment is very simple. People put their finger under a small lever, which is attached to a little motor, and the motor generates a small force on the finger and then stops. And the subject's task is then to use the other hand to push on the lever from above to generate the same percept. Ah. And so what they do is they tend to push too hard because when they do it themselves, they predict what's going to happen, subtract it off, so they have to push harder. And they push harder by about 50%. So if they experience a force of you know, a kilo, they will produce you know, one and a half kilos of force to get the same experience. So people that are delusional, they actually have a, represent, a, self, a very accurate self-representation of their effect on the world around them. That's correct. That's correct. So people, people with schizophrenia who have these illusions of control, they are able to match accurately because they don't have the predictive phenomena and therefore they can actually match more accurately than normal subjects. So are they delusional? Well, unfortunately, yes, because it, what it means is they find it hard to separate out the things that they've done in the world from things that just happen in the world. So you need this predictive phenomena to be able to know is it me or is it someone else which is doing something? And they're not able to disambiguate between those two even though they can match forces more accurately. Thanks to Daniel Wolpert from Cambridge University, who probes delusions using tickle and tapping machines to get to grips with why people with schizophrenia seem better equipped at tickling themselves. It's due to the problem of distinguishing whether sensations arise from one's own actions or from external sources. So most healthy volunteers can identify sensation that they cause themselves and then discount or attenuate them. Hence, our inability to tickle ourselves. However, some patients with schizophrenia seem to lack the ability to attenuate the sensations arising from their own actions, which leads them to showing little difference in their perception of external and self-tickle. And closing this month's show, how funny is this? I'm seven, I'm five years old. What did the path say to the wall? I don't know. What did the path say to the wall? I like your style. <laughs> Funny, funny. Now, we've all had our favourite, usually terrible, jokes as children. But how does humour develop? How does laughter develop in the younger child? We turn to Dr Casper Adiman from Birkbeck University, London, to find out what keeps him fired up about his research. So I've been a developmental psychologist studying babies for a long time. And most of the time when we're doing that, we're actually making the babies bored. Um, we show them the same thing over and over again, and then we show them something slightly different and see if they stop being bored. Um, and that's great for doing a controlled scientific study of how babies learn, but it doesn't capture the most fun thing about babies, which is that they laugh more uh, than we do at, at, at everything. Um, and I was interested in seeing if this would give us a different perspective on what babies learn. So obviously you and I laugh when we find something funny, also when we get the joke, and that, that means ability to sort of spot that there's something slightly unusual about this joke or this situation. And so I wanted to see, it does that also apply to babies? Does what they laugh at map on to what they understand at different ages? So we did this big internet survey, and we've had 500 parents um, tell us about their baby so far. And so far, we find two, two big main findings. Firstly, that laughter does sort of follow this, this clear development, that the little moments of things that babies understand. So uh, dog going meow is not very funny until you understand that dogs are supposed to go woof. So very young babies don't get that. In fact, the, 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 
the, the best way to make a three to six month old baby laugh is to just dangle them upside down. For some reason, that seems to be their thing they find most, most hilarious. The other big thing we found, and which is found in adult laughter research, is that laughter isn't just about humor and jokes. It's um, a very social process. If you think the bonding between the mother and child is like an essential part of that, that very early development, the fact that babies have this amazing charisma and ability to make us laugh sort of thinks out a little bit about, well, how laughter and humor, humor works. Uh, I mean, adults, if you look at a good stand uh there are jokes there, but it's also just that we find them a, a really charming and charismatic person and that we want to share in, in sort of, the, the delight that they're, they're, they're sharing with us. Um, and that's certainly something that we see between the mother and the baby. A baby, you know, can, can start laughing at something, but then that sets everybody else laughing. Um, and it's a very much a back-and-forth process and, and, a, and a social process. And humour develops alongside language skills, thanks to Dr Casper Adiman from Birkbeck, London. If you have any comments or questions about this show, please contact Hannah at thenakedscientists.com. You can tweet at Naked Neuroscience or you can post on our Naked Scientists Facebook page and you'll find the full transcript for this episode and other Naked Neuroscience episodes on our website. That's thenakedscientists.com forward slash neuroscience. I'll be back again next month to investigate technology in the brain. Are children, as young as four, getting addicted to smartphones? Can technology help those with memory problems? And how is technology changing our brains? We'll find out. That's all we've got time for, I'm afraid, for this month. I'm Hannah Critchlow and this is Naked Neuroscience in association with the Wellcome Trust and in partnership with the British Neuroscience Association. See you next month to open our minds. Thank you.